This is a podcast about our lived experience, which unfortunately includes infant death and subsequent mental health struggles. Please take good care of yourself and only listen if this content feels safe for you right now. We'll still be here when you're ready. Hi, I'm Judith. And I'm Alina. We both lost babies to SIDS in winter 2021. In the throes of grief, I reached out to a stranger on the internet and our friendship was born. In the years since, we've been working hard to survive, rebuild, and navigate the continual challenges that have come our way, including divorce, job loss, dating while bereaved, moving multiple times, health scares, pregnancy and parenting a living child, starting new jobs, and so much more. We are tired. Happily Ever After is out of the question for us, but this podcast documents our journeys to happier ever after because we believe life after loss is worth living. So join us as we laugh, cry, cry until we laugh. (laughs) Welcome to As Long As I'm Living podcast. We're so glad you're here. Hi, everybody. Welcome to As Long As I'm Living podcast. This is Alina here. I think this is my first time ever putting a trigger warning on an episode, but I am putting the biggest ever trigger warning on this episode. Today, we are talking to paramedic and autopsy technician Afina and Deputy Coroner Caroline about infant autopsy, about infant death investigation. Um, This episode is not for everyone. Like, I'm going to say that explicitly. It is not for everyone. We talk really frankly about dead bodies. Unfortunately, Judith and I are both intimately acquainted with dead bodies, with our son's dead bodies. Um, Like as an example of of something we talk about, I refer to Quinn or, you know, his body as super dead. And I talk about what that means, like what it looked and felt like. Um, If that's something that horrifies you to think about, I'm really going to encourage you to skip this episode. Like seriously, we talk about you know, removing the organs. We talk about, like I said, what dead bodies look like, um, doll reenactments, like body lividity, like really, really, like really gruesome, gory stuff that is so fucking fascinating (laughs) to both Judith and myself. We were on the edge of our seats in this call. Like I've edited this down to a 40 minute episode, but we talked for over two hours um, with Athena and Caroline, who are, by the way, so lovely. We completely forgot to do an introduction. So I'm just saying this right now. This is Athena and Caroline. We were so happy to have them. Um, please listen to this episode only if you feel up for it. And if this interests you, we are not offended. If this does not interest you like it does us, please just skip this one. And remember, you can always start this episode and then skip it. Um, on a personal note for our families, I think both Judith and I feel like this one's probably not for you guys. Um, you were there the day of the deaths. You you were there for a lot of what we talk about in this episode, and we don't want to re-traumatize you. Um, but, you know, listen at your own risk. Um, and like I said, this episode was so interesting and in a bizarre way, like, really healing. Um, we had a lot of questions answered that we thought we were never going to get answered. So thank you to Afina and Caroline. Um I have a ton more content from them that I think I might release as a bonus episode. So keep an eye out for that. We'll put a content warning on that one as well. And with that, I am going to send you into the episode. These are the last responders, Athena and Caroline. Hello. Hello. (laughs) Hi, both of you. It's so nice to meet you. Hello. I have like a terrible glare coming down from my, I'm in like a random room. No worries. We are, we are airline came, airline's on we vacation. We are hot mess express. We are not professional people. We are. That's good. 
I, I can't even tell you. We've recorded this from under like blankets in our bed. Like we're not all good. Well, it's such a pleasure to meet you guys. Um, I just want to introduce myself. I don't even think yeah, I that's what I was going to do too. That's what I was going to do too because you guys okay, don't you know guys, us at all. We were just like random people from the internet who were like, hi, come on our podcast. Yes. Let's be friends. Come on podcast. Yeah. Exactly. I think this is a really good example of like that you, there's no – like if you don't ask, you don't get. And I kind of feel like because I – because I just reached out on TikTok, I'm shocked that you responded and said, yes, I feel like I should go reach out to Taylor Swift or something. I feel like I need to shoot higher. Just reach out to all sorts of strangers on the internet. You're, you're putting me on a pedestal. That's not necessary. That's so funny. <laughs> but yeah, so so um, the two of us, this podcast is is our journeys with our own, our own grief journey. So we each lost a baby to SIDS um, okay. in winter of 2021. And the podcast is mainly about like our own individual grief journeys. We've also interviewed though experts in various fields, you know, adjacent to that. So we've interviewed, you know, SIDS experts, we've interviewed pediatricians, we've interviewed therapists, trauma therapists, and regular therapists, grief therapists, OBGYNs, OBGYNs. Um, and this episode, like, I'm not going to lie. The two of us, like this is this, the concept of what you both do for work is fascinating to us. And I don't know how much people are going to, like, I don't know how much our listeners are going to care about this, but like, I personally am like fascinated by this and I cannot wait to talk to you. It just, it just depends on what kind of person you are. Like I'm detail oriented. Like even when really bad stuff happens, I need to know all the details. That's how I heal. I'm married to someone who heals by not not healing, yes. uh, which, which I personally don't think is healthy. Um, but but he just deals with things by not dealing with them. And, and we yeah. talk about that. Like we deal with things differently. And he, like the thought of what I do, and, and Caroline and I have been friends for years. And, and so I talk about her a lot. The thought of what we do, he's just like completely put off by it. But yeah. it just like, it depends on the person. I mean, yeah. it absolutely yeah. depends on the person. And so that well, each of us, both of our sons have had infant autopsies. And that's definitely like where where the focus of this conversation is, is about infant autopsies in particular, but like, I'm just kind of fascinated by what you do in general. So we really appreciate you guys coming on to talk to us. Also, I saw a TikTok from you, Afina, and remind me what your handle is. Uh, Muerto Vivos Docent 127. So we will link you in the description. I I don't, I wouldn't know how to spell that. Uh, (laughs) I may even have to look it up because I don't know how to, so the funny thing about the whole TikTok was my 17-year-old daughter came to me. She was 16 at the time. And she was like, hey, let's make a TikTok. And I was like, I've never, I didn't even have TikTok on my phone. <laughs> so I I didn't know anything about TikTok. So when I made it, like the handle is Latin for the dead teach the living. And so I just made it like on a whim, n- never, never even expecting it to be as popular as it is. So I, I was like, I went and spoke to a forensic club um, and... <laughs> They were like, what's your TikTok? I literally had to look it up and they were like, you're not legit. And I was like, listen, I've got like half a million followers. It's it's legit. But I just, I didn't, I didn't, I would have picked something that I could spell had I known that it was going to do anything. And so I think people just like me because I'm like a little bit of a smart ass enough that it's like not disrespectful, but also makes it palatable to people who want to learn about what, what Caroline and curious. I do. Like I have TikTok, but I don't really watch TikToks because it's it's not healthy. I I personally yeah. don't think it's healthy. Like I put social media out there, but people send me videos constantly, and I don't like I re- I rarely watch them because I feel like one I don't want to copy another artist. Like I feel like that's your art and that's your your intellectual property, and I don't want to copy mm. it. So I, like I want my content to be unique to me, and 
So it's, and I just don't want to be disrespectful to someone else. And then someone be like, you copied this. Like, are we going to say similar things? Of course, because we do similar jobs, but I don't watch, there's another big creator on that, that talks about um, autopsies. And I don't, I follow him because he requested to follow me and I thought it was the right thing to do, but like, I just want to be me. I, I, don't, well, I don't have time. Like we read a lot, lot of requests for like, do people reach out to you just saying I lost my child? Like surprisingly. Yes. Yes. Oh, really? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I, I talked to Caroline cause she does all of like the, the, the paperwork and she knows all the laws and she's like the guy. And then okay. I, I, I deal with the children on in a different way. And she does, you know, huh. she goes to the scene and she deals with moms in person. I, and hopefully like, you know, when you're already in a bad situation and you're grieving loss of a child, like you need someone to show up for you in a different kind of way. And Caroline and, and her husband was a deputy coroner before, before he went to training and they just show up for people beautifully. And yes. You're going to have to, the first question that I'm going to have for you is like, you're going to have to explain to me how it all works. Like who, what is a coroner? I don't, I don't know anything about this. Right. I don't, like I don't from the understand. time the body, from the time the, the person the body dies. Is, to when I finally get the autopsy report in the mail. <laughs> what? Because it took me a year and a half. That's why I'm, I'm, I'm punting that one to Caroline. I'm punting that yeah. one to Caroline. I actually like. Long. I will say I watched some of your TikToks just, but just to prep for this. I mean, I had already seen a bunch of your TikToks, but I was watching some just now, and um, I love the way you refer to yourself like as a last responder. So like first responders, like yeah. paramedics, EMTs, and then you're like kind of the last responder, right? Like you're like the last medical professional who sees a human being when you know before yes. they're buried or cremated. And I love the way that you put that, like the last responder. So like, talk to us about like someone dies what is the process okay, of, like yeah, where you dies. guys where do you guys come in because um, I know I will say like I personally get confused between like the mortician and the autopsy and I know they're totally sure. different but like in my mind they're like the same and the thing coroner, and, I know they're and the medical not. examiner and then I got at some point I was having this whole thing I couldn't find the toxic toxicology so then they sent me to like some scientist maybe well, I yeah. don't know who does a toxicology oh, report. Forensic toxicologist. Yeah. So, okay. The baby left. dies. The person dies, not in a hospital. Because I assume if it's in a hospital, you guys aren't involved. So that's not that's not always the case. Oh, okay. um, and I just want to say that. So I'm not representing the county that I work for when I'm saying. Yeah. That. Of course. Um, so. Different jurisdictions do things differently. Um, mm-hmm. Certain states are medical examiner states. Uh, certain states are coroner states. In the state of Indiana, where Athena and I are from, it's a coroner state. So mm-hmm. coroner and deputy coroners have to have a certification to be able to be a medical legal death investigator. They have to keep a certain number of training hours every year to keep that certification up and go through that extensive training and then take you know, the exam to pass that and do that. Um, that being said, every, like, I don't want to say every scene death, but like a death at a residence that's not attended by a physician, technically the coroner's office is supposed to respond to that scene. If -hmm. someone's at home on hospice care, they're technically under the care of a doctor. So in our County where I work, cause I'm the chief deputy coroner there, we have those cases still referred to us. And then we screen them. And I say, well, if this person's on hospice and it appears it's a natural death and there's nothing else at play here, like they didn't fall down the stairs, you know, have an accident where they broke their neck because then it, it changes it from a natural death to an accident. And in the mm-hmm. state of Indiana, the coroner is the only one who can sign an, an accident. 
So, um, so we respond. What's the difference between a coroner and a medical examiner? So the medical, it's just a different state. So the medical it's the same job, basically, except medical examiners have to be actual medical doctors. Okay. Okay. Do not have to have a medical degree. But so who calls said, you? Who calls uh, the coroner? So law enforcement, say a family finds their loved one deceased, they report mm-hmm. it to the police. And then, and Afina, by all means, jump in here if there's yeah, yeah, sure. also a deputy coroner. Um, but family member finds their loved one deceased, they'll call law enforcement. Law enforcement goes, you know, they are first responders. They respond, confirm, okay, yes, this person's deceased. And then they say, we need the coroner to make scene. Um, your question about if someone dies in a hospital, them not being a coroner's case, that's not true. It depends on the type of death um, and the circumstances surrounding it. So in the county I work for, we have it set up so that our major hospitals report every single death to us. And then our deputy coroners or whoever's on call after hours, or if it's during the day, they report it to the office. We screen those calls and say, yes, it needs to be a coroner's case or no, it does not. Well, and even like, so I don't know if you guys know this or not, but I'm also a paramedic. So what Caroline's talking about is someone continues the care. So, Mm -hmm. um, so let's say, since we're talking about infant death, so infant death, so I get called 911 to the scene. Now I'm assuming care for that child. Someone has initiated emergency medical services to the house and I come and then I take over care of the child. So if we work the child, which, which that means, you know, try to, to save, save the infant, Mm -hmm. which I, I will say 99% of the time we always work the baby because I also do mental health for public safety. And I feel like for, for you as a parent and for me as a paramedic, like I want to make sure that everything is done possible so that I can sleep at night. Like I'm, I'm going to have trouble yeah. anyways, but I want to make sure that I've done everything humanly possible for that child, for you, for everyone on scene, because it has been my experience in the past that I I've got, I've shown up and I'm like, Oh, well this, this person's, you know, super dead. And the, when I say I'm laughing and like, this is like the most morbid conversation ever, but I have to tell you, like my experience, my son was, and I can say this to you all, like, I don't right. know if I'll keep this in the podcast. He was super dead. Like he was cold, rigid, like yeah. super, super dead. And they still did like we spent, we had $8,000 in medical bills for this, yeah. like, flat out full on corpse. Yeah. Um, so like I hearing you talk about it, the way you're talking about it is actually giving me a perspective that it's it, it makes me feel good about it. It's comforting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Cause at the time it felt like a waste. I'm <laughs> honestly, speechless. I, yeah. I'm, I'm, ne- I'm speechless. <laughs> that doesn't happen by the way. You well, guys buck, don't know Judith, but that does not up. happen. Buckle up. Cause you never met Caroline and I, you're going to be speechless. <laughs> so you're telling me. Yeah, the, the majority of infant deaths or child deaths that we have are transported regardless of if they are not exhibiting, you know, signs of life when they are discovered. Yeah. They will try yeah. and work the child and they will try and transport the child because they want to so, do everything they can to save, you know. So talk to me about the difference. Like what would make you not do that? Because Judith, I know in your case, you, your son, so my son's name was Quinn, by the way, and, <laughs> and Judith's son's name was Aiden. They did not transport Aiden, right, Judith? But they did work on him. And I yep. remember thinking when they put something up his nose, like there was, they put like a string. Did it look like a straw, but it was plastic? Yes. They yep. put that up yep. his nose. And um, for a second, my brain, because I was obviously in shock, was thinking, oh, there's a chance. That's they what that work happened on to him me too. If yeah. there was no chance. Yeah. See, and that's kind of one of the things that we've tilted in EMS in the last probably 
five to 10 years is before it was do everything, you know, and, it, and they realized that we were giving people false hopes. And yeah. so when I, I do things my way, you know, every paramedic does a different, I read a lot on mental health and I follow that much more closely than, than I probably should in a healthy <laughs> manner. But like, I also say, listen, here's a situation, you know, the, the attempt may not work. Yeah. Sometimes I mean, I, in 20 years, I've been in EMS. Well, it's almost 20 years since 2004. And I can only think of one time in my entire career where I've gone or heard a story about people showing up, um, and, and not working the child. And that's, I I used to be like, Oh my God, that's so shitty. Like, how could you do that to the parents? But Mm -hmm. also like the older I get, like false hope is, is not actually fair to you. And it's inhumane to, yeah. To make you believe like you, your brain's like trying to process what you actually see. And then first responders show up and now they're, you know, putting an IO in your child. And like, at what point do you say, listen, like we cannot, like, there's just a line. And so when we show up, the things we look for are, are they stiff? You know, rigor mortis Mm -hmm. is set in, you know, do they have dependent lividity, which means the blood is pooling? Yep. Um, are they mortally wounded? You know, meaning like, is there, is their body intact? Like, I, I mean, you, you know that there are are situations where kids are ripped apart or, you know, abused to oblivion and and their head is caved in. And and that sounds harsh to say out loud to like the general public, but those are things that you just, you know, are unsurvivable that we say incompatible with life. And, you know, when we show up, you know, when I was young and and I thought I could save everyone and I believe that because that's what they tell you in school, like you, you are going to save lives, you know, you're going to be a healthcare hero. And then the older I get, I was like, that's, it's actually not true. Like it's, it's just, and it's not fair to you. So. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So then I, I want to talk to you too about this because you're saying you work with law enforcement. My understanding is your job and maybe not exclusively, but a significant portion of what you do is investigating. Was there a crime? So we do not, my job as, as a chief deputy coroner or coroner is to determine cause and manner of death. Mm-hmm. So technically law enforcement, they're the ones who are going to investigate, you know, was there a crime committed here and go after that end of it. Mm-hmm. I can do the autopsy and say, well, this is a the homicide. The skull was bashed in, so right. that probably yeah. didn't happen well, naturally. Besides um, case, it's law enforcement's job to go and pursue that and all of those things. Right. So because so, work- I'm thinking about when you're saying, you know, as a paramedic, you come into the home and you want to do what you can for the child. Like I know I was in, in, you know, the state I was in, I wasn't in an amazing mental health space, obviously I was in shock and just crazed. But I remember saying like, why are you doing all this? Like he's dead. Mm -hmm. And, and there was a part of me that was starting to think to myself because there was police and everything there. Like, is it suspicious that I'm like, he's dead. Like, why are you doing this? It feels offensive to you, but but you have to keep in mind, like our perspective is, is we speak for the dead. Yeah. So if you killed your child, you obviously wouldn't want us to know that. So our job is to go in and say, okay, well, we found a fracture in this baby's skull. What caused that fracture? Well, if it's explainable, it's explainable. You know, maybe, maybe the child had been in a car accident months before and it, you know, or whatever the case may be. So we, it can come off as offensive because people are like, Oh my God, I can't believe you won't let me touch my baby, you know? And, and they get really Mm -hmm. upset. But at the end of the day, like if you could take the emotions out of it and look at it, because we're coming in from a a non-emotional standpoint, like our job is to come in and look at facts and evidence and, and speak for that child in case 
something foul happened right. to them. And and in hindsight, yeah. I can look at that and say that I really appreciate. I as as a parent, I'm glad someone was speaking on his behalf and looked into this on his behalf. And I'll actually add, you know, for context for you both, um, an extended autopsy, not through the medical examiner, but through a, a nonprofit, actually found a gene. Um, related, potentially related to my son's death that I'm actually doing IVF to select out for future children. So like, I fully am supportive of all of this. I think my only thing is like, I think about the day of and how it could have maybe been handled better, but it sounds like there's a lot. Say we have a homicide case and we respond Mm -hmm. to that scene and we don't treat every case as a homicide case first, Mm -hmm. we can go back. It's just like evidence is lost. So that's how we have to approach every yeah. single scene. And then you kind of work backwards and rule things out as Afina was saying. It's one reason like we do take hospital cases. Um, even some cases we'll accept that are fetal demise cases. So, you know, baby was born, but did not have any heart tones or anything. Well, if moms had five previous miscarriages, we want to try and help get answers for that mom, you know, because yeah. she wants, we want to help her. Um, so we do uh, genetic testing through Mayo Clinic. We've done that several times, um, you know, and identified things like you're talking about so that you know it's there and you can proceed accordingly so you don't have to go through that traumatic experience again. And I think one thing that it's like the hospital, sometimes we have struggles working with like, um, you know, Afina, as you know, the maternity yeah. award if there's a fetal demise or an infant death because we of course want to accommodate everything for the for the mom to be able to keep their infant and stay with the child for as long as possible. But after you know one or two days, even sometimes three days, if they're not discharged and they want to keep that baby, it poses um, challenges for us to be able to find those answers. And a lot mm-hmm. of the time, in that moment, they're not going to understand or see. But later down the road, like you're saying, they're very grateful because we are able to find answers a lot of the time. Sometimes, unfortunately, we can't. We will have a negative autopsy and we don't know what happened and we tried everything we can, but other times we can, and it can help save, you know, future children or other children that you already have and stuff. So, um, it's just, there's a lot of different factors going on that is not always evident when it's happening. I want to go back to, you get the phone call. Okay. You get alerted from the emergency system and you go to the house. Okay. And your job there is to collect the body? What is your job? So we have to preserve the scene first and foremost. So law enforcement will ask them to, um, and like, I guess what I can compare it to, like, if it's like, we're, we're specifically talking about infant death, but say it was like not an infant death and it's like a suspected suicide or something like that. Like Uh don't move the gun, leave the body exactly where it's at. Technically no one's supposed to touch the body except for the coroner when they arrive. Um, so in, in the same situation now, because of the way, like Afina, she's a paramedic and she, you know, how we're talking about how 95% of the time or whatever we can throw out there, you know, infants are worked. Okay. So there's going to be, I've had cases where I've responded and that child is in the ambulance because they've taken the child, tried to work the child. And then they realize in the ambulance, this isn't going to go anywhere. So they don't transport. Um, So when I get on scene, it's all a matter of, okay, let's keep everything exactly how it is. We do doll reenactments, which at the time, yes. it yep. can be very traumatic. Yes, I call the doll reenactments. So helpful. Yep. So helpful. Even in the review teams, I mean, if we don't have a doll reenactment, it's it's a challenge to kind of go back. So 
Um, sometimes we'll come and do, we'll do the doll reenactment later. Um, it just depends, but we need mm-hmm. to know exactly how that infant was found, um, exactly how the infant was laid down to go to, to bed. I mean, there's just so many factors. We have yeah. a form for 12 months and under that we fill out. Um, it's called a foodie oh, form. Oh, yes. Those questions. I oh, yes, all the, the questions. Yeah. I know the questions. <laughs> Very what time did they eat? Were they born before this many weeks? Did you breastfeed? Um, where did you find them? When did you last see them? What time did they normally go to bed? What was their demeanor? Like, were they demeanor? Were they a fussy yeah. kid? I remember yeah. a lot. And it falls. So when we get to the yeah. scene, we basically preserve it first. And then we just kind of work from there. We want to document mm-hmm. everything. And like I said before, law enforcement does their investigation. We do an independent one. So we have to do all of our own scene investigation as far as photographs, everything like that. Um, you know, there's just a lot that goes into it. And then once okay, we, wait, done- wait, we have to pause, cause I've got more questions. Pause. Yeah, Quick question. Sure. So at my crime scene, uh, they brought at your crime a, scene. Oh my crime scene. they brought a, um, car seat, which mm-hmm. I thought was the most kind in that moment. I thought it was the most just loving, generous thing that they could have done. This idea that they, I don't know, coroner, I think it was the coroner. Uh, or whoever it was, brought a car seat to take my son out and to take him oh. to the wherever. Wow. I mean, I, I love that. I've yes. And um, it was a car seat from like a long time ago. I could tell like it wasn't a new <laughs> one, but it just meant so much to me because what would, you know, the idea that they, how would they have carried him out? I don't know. I mean, that makes a lot of sense though, because then you feel like you're, they're taking good care. And yeah, taking care of him. What are some of the things that you do? To, to treat, uh, do you treat an infant's body different than an adult's body? Like, are there things you do to, like, care for them? Like, I sometimes see, like, they'll keep the lights on at night or whatever, even though the baby's gone. Like, So when I do the autopsies on babies, I carry them. I carry the babies just like you a real baby. You carry the baby out of the house. Well, so we have, I call them body snatchers, but they're actually, like, <laughs> like body removal specialists or some fancy term, I'm sure. But I call them the body snatchers. <laughs> They, they're independent and they're a contractor that works with the coroner's office. Oh. Um, a job and I don't know, do they carry them what out? Are these jobs? Well, so not all counties have that, but we're in my County. We are very lucky to have it because I, super countless people, this, I would not <laughs> do my job if I had to be one to remove, cause we have decomp bodies. We have all sorts of, yeah. bodies. Yeah. Um, but exactly what Afina is saying, we will wrap the baby in a sheet and carry the baby out, um, you know, even in the hospital and stuff, because it's just, it's just different. So, yeah. and once the baby's in the car and please, if this is too much, don't answer. No, no, once the baby's in the car, where do you put it? So we have just small cots, you know, that we'll put the baby on or, you know, in yes. The trunk? No. So, we, so, so our transport company has a minivan. So in the back of the minivan, we have, yes. So they can put the baby in the, in the back of the minivan. Yep. Really it small. looks like an ambulance stretcher. Like you see on okay. TV, it, it okay. looks like that. Only it's like one person can do it much easier than an yes. ambulance. Yeah. Pod, well, the, so. the car seat thing, I mean, there's not much that I remember that was done with like compassion and where mm-hmm. I felt like someone was really thinking me of me as the parent. And mm-hmm. that was one thing where I felt scene because you said like you have to be professional and you're the baby's voice not my voice but you know I think a lot about people who lost their children in hospitals and I'm jealous of the compassion that they were treated with I'm jealous 
with just like the tender, gentle care or the fact that their children got handprints and footprints and hair snippings Mm. and that it's an environment that's very, um, that's very compassionate to death. And the environment that I had was a crime scene. It was not compassionate to death in the way. I think (laughs) from your perspective, I absolutely see that. I absolutely 100% see that. And I want to give you a little snippet of what, what goes on for us because there's one me as a paramedic, me as a firefighter, me as an autopsy tech, and Caroline can absolutely 100% attest to this. There's not one baby that we go on that doesn't affect us. And I mean, I, I do peer support and I talk to police officers, firefighters from every county that surrounds mine. And there's never an infant death that doesn't involve, in our area anyways, a psychologist and a debriefing or, or the first responders have to go meet with her and, and at least check in and say, I'm okay, or I'm not okay. And it gives them the opportunity to, to seek additional mental health help for themselves because there's never been a baby ever that did not affect us in a totally different way than, than an adult. And I mean, we have adult cases that really stick with you. Um, they're usually like the more graphic or, you know, um, and there was such a brief second, but you you know it really stayed with me. And yeah. I understand from where you're, where any professional is sitting, it's your job. Like you're looking at it like a job. You know you have to be professional, and then when you go home, you have the privacy to um yeah. to express that. And I I completely get it. But I would love to know if you can tell. And this is such a dumb question, but you can tell I'm a grieving no mother. So I'm going to ask dumb. it. No, we're like we're literally <laughs> like, like the most laid back. This is for not some doing. reason like this really mattered to me. So I'm going to ask it anyway because I know yeah. our listeners are going to care also. But like, yeah. can you tell the baby was loved? Like, can you tell that we picked that sheet and that <laughs> we fed that bottle and that we cared about the angle and that we took a billion pictures and can you tell that we had the right foods and the thing and the right toys and the and that all those hours that went into planning like just this one perfect magic? It felt like I was treated because it was a crime scene like a criminal, but. Can you tell the difference between my home and a criminal? <laughs> oh, yeah. I will. So what Athena was saying as far as like the way that we're trained to be like cold or, you know, be just in a certain mindset in that second that we're, we respond to that scene. There's absolutely a difference when you walk in a house and you see the way that something is compared to another house where you walk in and you get a feeling where it's like, and I don't know that I want to necessarily say a, a parent didn't love their child because like I have a master's degree. Every in parent loves their child. Yeah. Well, yeah. so most, most, most. <laughs> yeah. So, so if some parent has a horrible upbringing and that's all they know, yeah. they're, you know, taking care of their child a certain way. I don't want to say that I can tell that they didn't love their child, but we can, <laughs> I can definitely tell the level of care that they were taking care of their child, if that makes sense. And I, I, I have read my son's police report. Um, mm-hmm. I was able to get a copy of it once. Finally, two two full years later, the case was closed. Um, I was able to get a copy of it, and I read it, and it said things like, um, you know, a child had um, diaper cream, preventative diaper cream, even though he mm-hmm. didn't have diaper rash, and yep. um, there were no blankets in the crib, and he had a sound machine, and. Mm-hmm. And there was like a list of like, you know, all of, you know, he had medicines that were, you know, <laughs> had the right dropper sizes. And yeah. like they listed all of the stuff from the scene that yeah. 
in his everyday life, like to me, just felt so normal. Like, of course, he would have a humidifier. Of course, he would have a stack of My books. My son didn't have a humidifier. Every night. Like, what is this fancy kid oh, you have? He <laughs> had very dry skin. But, uh, but all of this stuff, but I remember reading it. And, uh, and although, like, I was able to read between the lines of the police report and I could see what they were saying was, this was a household where they were taking good care of this child. Like yeah. they didn't say like, this is a, this is a household where they love their child and they couldn't have possibly killed him, but they were listing. I could see they were listing literally every single thing. And it felt so good to read just like this very explicit, like cold, you know, list yeah. of all the things I did that they made me a good parent. They're doing that because if it's gonna, if they do find something where there was like a neglect of the child, mm-hmm. all these things are documented and all of that's, you know, documentation that there was no neglect in the care of the child. Because if there is a crime that's found and then it's going to go to the judicial system and go to court and the prosecutor's office is going to take it up, all of those things, you know, need to be documented. So, and, and so that brings me back to, I don't know that we can say, you know, oh, I can tell that this parent really loved their child, but yes, if you see parents who are taking care of their children, it makes you go, okay, you know, they really cared about their child and they were doing the things to care for their child because I've walked into, into scenes where you open the refrigerator and it's literally just moldy. There's no food there, you know, like there's no, so there's just, there's a lot of different extremes. So after you've worked so many cases, you can go in there and say, this feels normal. Yeah. This feels like they're, they're cared for, you know, this does not feel like there's any kind of neglect or anything. And unfortunately, you know, like Judith, you're saying there's situations, you know, where there's just no explainable reason why your child died. You know, I felt like I had a child at 20. I had just turned 20. I didn't know shit about being a parent. <laughs> I didn't. I, I had a terrible upbringing. My dad was never around. My mom was extremely abusive. You know, I, I entered the court system at, at 16, went to juvie. So I, I had a whole lot of growing up to do in a really short amount of time. And luckily I had done that prior to getting pregnant and I didn't know what I didn't know. Like I, I had no idea. And like I, and now in, in 2023, you have resources, right? Mm-hmm. But like when our parents were growing up, they did the best they could. And it was based off of what their parents did. And so depending on your location, your demographics, your socioeconomic status, like you take for granted what you know. And like you guys both have clean houses with, with nice things, but we see the houses that the mattresses are on the floor or where three or four children are sharing one twin size bed and they're filthy. And, you know, there's like, just to paint a picture, like they may have dogs in the house and there's just feces all over the floor. So you, you don't really know that exists until you hear someone say, Oh, it does exist. And and even when I think I've seen it all, uh, and then you see something else and you're like, holy shit, I never even in my, like, I, I just sit around and play scenarios in my head constantly. And, you know, like Caroline said, it's pretty apparent. Like when, when you've seen the worst of the worst, like you go in and there's certain things you look for. Like she said, food, cleanliness. Um, you know, when you say, who's your baby's doctor and they have no answer sign warning sign, like you, yeah. you should know. Yeah. And- well, like even with unsafe sleep practices, uh, that you're saying is that there are some families that don't know. And so, you know, they have this loss and they really may not know that their co-sleeping might have contributed to it. And you're in a place where you walk in and you can kind of tell that this person didn't know and it was an honest accident. 
I had no idea when I had my first child. I was 21 and I'm surprised I did not kill her. Literally, I slept with her every single night. Yeah. Um, I had no no idea. You had no idea. Yeah. 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 Can you talk a little bit about like SIDS specifically, which I, my understanding is it's a diagnosis of exclusion. So you look and there's nothing there. Right. So I remember like, I think Quinn's autopsy, like it said the cause of death was like unexplained in mm-hmm. manner undetermined or something like that was yeah. so unsatisfactory. Um, can you talk a little bit about like what the process looks like when you have an infant that comes well, in? Well, you're they skipped. They were in the van. Okay. They got in the van and then after the van, they go to, I think you probably go to like a facility. I don't know. They go to a room that maybe looks like in my head, it looks like an OR. Yeah. See, we, so, I'm really yeah. good at getting people off track. Cause I'll, I, I love <laughs> right. to talk. So, so um, <laughs> Once we're done with our on-scene investigation and we have everything, you know, where it needs to be and we check with law enforcement, make sure there's nothing else that they, because we work just basically side by side. Um, We work really well with the detectives, the scene techs and everything. Um, Once everyone is at a point where, um, you know, we can then transport the child or the infant, we then take the child or the infant to our facility um, where they do have to go into the cooler you know, to keep the temperature down because that slows down decomposition process. It does not stop it, but it slows it down. Um, In the state of Indiana, technically we're supposed to do an autopsy within 24 hours if it's on an infant or a child. So we really try to meet that, you know, standard that happens and we coordinate the autopsy. I think the California coroner's office missed that memo. There was something so, missing in the laws are all different and all the Massachusetts is very 90 Massachusetts is 90 days. So wow. I'm sitting here I'm like, wow. Wow. I had a TikTok follower say that they had her dad for 2 months and he couldn't even be viewed because he was freezer burnt. And oh I, let, let me give you some perspective on that. So it's it's not that we're just like, oh, today we're not doing autopsies. In our state, we in all states actually, they're grossly underserved in forensic pathologists and it's because a lot of like it's a hard sell you know when you go to medical school you want to help the living right and so then someone's like hey why don't you go help the dead that when you're young and a a medical student that's uh you're like uh why would i want to do that meanwhile that i'm old and just peopled out like why wouldn't you want to do that (laughs) i'm old and crusty i know things um you know, so it's a hard sell for people. And once you go through medical school, whatever you specialize in, it's very difficult and time consuming financially and, you know, in just to go back and do a different fellowship and go into forensic pathology. So. And, and like you're saying a different fellow, I mean, being forensic. So our, the County that I work for, we only use forensically certified pathologists. That's not a work. That's not a law. We don't have to do that, but we do because they're, they have all that extra experience when they're doing homicide cases, infant cases, child deaths, all those so things. So you try within 24 hours. We Correct. Try. So what I'll do, yes. So so my position, I, I actually do coordinate all of the autopsies and scheduling of everything. So if I know, like d- a deputy texts me in the corner and says, hey, I'm responding to a suspected infant death. I then am able to put the ball rolling and say, okay, we're going to need an autopsy on this. 100% of the time we do autopsies on those cases. Mm-hmm. Um, so I then get a hold of the forensic pathologist and we have one that travels from Dayton, Ohio, who's amazing. Um, well, two actually, they're partners. They travel from Dayton, Ohio. And the other one that we use travels from Indianapolis. So we have to coordinate that and we try everything that we can to get it done within 24 hours. 
if that doesn't happen because of unforeseen circumstances or they already have like court scheduled, we do it as soon as we can. But, you know, nine times out of 10 homicide cases, child deaths, we try to do those within 24 so hours. So then they come. Because okay, so now here we home. are. What do you call the room mm-hmm. where the procedures are done? That's the autopsy suite. And this is okay. where So Fina... you're in the autopsy suite. And, mm-hmm. um, and you basically... From my understanding, because I read the autopsy report, you take apart the body and weigh everything, make sure everything is looks as it should be. I don't take know. Genetics, take labs. Genetics, get blood. Samples. You take, I know you take uh, slides of the brain. Um, but you just like, take all these bits and pieces. Yeah. You open Fina. them up and take everything out. Yes, <laughs> this is her area of expertise because she's okay, like, yeah, Afina, please. the right-hand man to our doctors. <laughs> so we, we keep the baby in a cooler. Um, you know, we, we, we bring them out. I, I carry them out. Um, just because I feel Aww. like that's what I want to do. And that's what you would want me to do. Like, it just seems really like distant to wheel them out on a cart. Um, so I carry them in and, and, and we, we take pictures of them, you know, before we do anything to the body, we take, always take pictures. And then we collect, if we have clothes, we collect the clothes. And if, if it's, if it's genuinely not a criminal case, we'll give the clothes mm-hmm. back if they're not soiled. Um, I've, I see babies come in from the hospital with um, like their, their little hospital beanie caps on and their little yeah. wristbands. I, I'm careful with the wristbands. I put that stuff back and then, and it's all documented with the case. And then if the coroner's office is okay with it, that will be released to the family because I feel like for me, I would want that if that was my baby. Um, so I'm also very, very careful with that. Now, if, if the clothes are soiled or have blood on them, then, then no, that, that we don't yeah. want to, that's a biohazard situation. And that, you know, if we can work with the family and, and make that, um, work out okay, then we'll do it. But yes, like you said, you know, we take the pictures and then what we do is we, we remove each individual organ that will give us clues. Like the weights of these organs do give clues. Like if the heart weighs too much, like red flag what why is that heart weigh so much you know is that a genetic issue is that you know something like did they have something they ingest something Mm -hmm. um we take toxicology samples with the blood the urine and then we also take the vitreous from the eyes um when the babies are really small that's very difficult because there's just not enough vitreous in there so sometimes um vitreous and urine don't get taken but we always 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 get blood so what is what is vitreous (laughs) So it's the the water. It's called vitreous humor, which is just it's water that, that's in your eye. It's like it's kind of tears. Got it. Got it. <laughs> not not tears. Tears are a little bit different, but it's on the inside of your eyeball that makes your eyeball inflated. Okay. Okay. Got yep. It. Got it. Um, and then on trauma cases, um, with with kids or suspected, um, you know abuse or homicides will take the eyes out. So that is difficult for some people to hear, but in the back of your eyes, like if you've ever been to the eye doctor and they put you up to that little machine where you have to put your chin mm-hmm. on it and they like pop, pop the air mm-hmm. in your eye and they test the pressure. Well, there's also one where it goes and it takes a picture. It's like super bright. It's your retina and there's little blood vessels back there. So kids that have been injured um, intentionally or, you know, in a car accident, Syndrome, I was going to say shaken yeah, baby, I bet. Yeah. Shaken baby syndrome, big one, um, or, or abuse cases where there's violent trauma. 
um, those capillaries will break. So we'll take the eyes out and we'll preserve them. And then like in a week or two, they'll cut those and they'll send them in for histology and you'll see those capillaries. It's not usually visual. Like most of the time you can't see that like with the naked eye. Sometimes you can. I had a case um, where you could see it and the doctor pointed it out, but most generally you you can't see it. Fascinating. That's what Judith, you were asking about, like when they take, they look under the microscope, I think you mentioned, like brain slides. Yeah, the brain process it. And so they can look under the microscope. Yeah. Well, I know that because you guys work with the, um, do you guys work with um, Dr. Goldstein? The Roberts program. Roberts program. um, Because he, they like do, he, he had told me it was this like research program out of Harvard. And he had told me that he said, uh, the coroner's job or the medical examiner's job is to, to find out if there's a crime. It's not mm-hmm. their job to do medical research and like science research where they're, you know, looking at massive amounts of data and looking at like the different, I don't know what chemicals that make it up. Their job is looking for a crime. Or, yeah. yeah, the serotonin levels. And he was like, <laughs> so after they do their report, then they send us their slides to do further testing, to do genome sequencing, to they do like other things. Um, and so he, had, that's what he had told me. So that's kind of what so I we send out, um, for, so if we do histology, we send that out to an independent lab. What do we do? Even toxicology, we send out that out to an independent lab and they run drug testing and all of those mm-hmm. things. They run a toxicology panel. If we do like genetic testing, we'll send it out to Mayo clinic mm-hmm. and they do a genetic panel. It can be a cardiac panel. It can be, yep. you know, whatever yeah. we're suspecting or looking at. Yeah. So there are those independent labs that we send that testing out to because we don't do that testing in house. Right. Um, but that being said, when that testing comes back, it all comes back to us. We put all those pieces together and we do the final determination of cause and yeah. so, so what so Judith with is talking case, about, the Roberts but, program is a, a SIDS specific research mm-hmm. program. So it's like the autopsy is completed, the coroner's office signs off on their report, and then this is like an extra. additional layer where they're like yeah. taking data longitudinally over mm-hmm. decades. And that's actually where I found out about the gene I have potentially because it's not the type of gene that we, it's a variant of uncertain significance. And we're not sure if it's one that is necessarily correlated with SIDS, but because it's like questionable, like it came up on his screen, but it wouldn't necessarily come up on like, you know, the standard corner panel yeah. screen that you would look at. For so, SIDS. I kind of wonder if that's part of like a, like a private, like the parent would elect in because sometimes yeah, it is. Yes, yes it, it is. is. We yes, elected it into is. it. We elected yes. into it. Yeah. Right. And and right. we had to like the sign. It was, it was away. fully like the state had to finish what they were doing. Like right. it was completely yeah. separate from the well, actual and that's, process that's that you're how talking we, about. You know, and that's why we call it practicing medicine because we keep practicing. And yeah. so those <laughs> meta-analysis studies are really good because they do collect data from all over all walks of life. And they look at, you know, and you, you, you two seem very like willing to participate. Not all parents are, are capable of that. Yeah. And so it's very important that, you know, parents be advocate for, for their yeah. kids. And the problem is, is that, you don't know that you're going to need to be an advocate for your kid unless you're in that situation. And yeah. it's very difficult to think clearly um, yes. through those situations when you're grieving on top of everything else. Yeah. When your child has died, you're so out of it and you're yeah. so not thinking logically. And it's so, it's such a blessing, I think, that we live in a country where there's such a system and process in place to take these next steps, to take these blood samples, to look into why someone died. Um, because I wouldn't have the fortitude in that moment to pursue that. 
Um, right. I'd like to pursue those answers. And the fact that someone could preserve a moment in time so when I was ready, the information was available to me. But it was only available to me because the coroners and the medical officers, examiners and the police did such an excellent job at preserving that moment in time. So that's mm-hmm. just, I really feel grateful for that. To all of our wonderful new friends, we want to hear from you. Email us at as long as I'm living podcast at gmail.com and follow us on Instagram at as long as I'm living podcast. We'll get back to you as soon as our grieving brains allow. Yay. <laughs> <laughs>